Our passage for this morning is Matthew 23, 29 to 39. Uh, if you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Again, that's Matthew 23, uh, 29 uh, to 39. It's been just a little over five months now since we've started our study of Jesus' encounter with the religious leaders in the temple on the Tuesday before His crucifixion. Uh, you'll recall that this has been an encounter wherein the hard-heartedness of Israel's religious leaders has been put on display for everyone to see. Jesus entered into the temple uh, on Sunday of Passion Week, uh, hailed as the coming of the promised Son of David by the crowds, and, and after performing a brief inspection of the temple, that, again, that Sunday evening, He immediately returned the next day and tossed out the money changers and the merchants selling animals for sacrifices while rebuking Israel for the hypocrisy in their worship. He then stood there in the temple healing the blind and the lame as he continued to present himself to Israel as the fulfillment of the long-promised Davidic king. The message clearly was that if Israel was going to be delivered, If the Old Testament promises predicting their salvation, both at a political and spiritual level, were going to be fulfilled, then it was going to come at the hands of Jesus. In fact, you'll recall that the message was so obvious at that point that even the children were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Even they recognize who Jesus is and what it meant for Israel. The religious leaders, however, were having nothing of it. They rejected Jesus throughout His ministry in spite of an overwhelming amount of evidence. And so nothing was going to change that now that He was in Jerusalem. And so when Jesus comes back into the temple on Tuesday, there they were waiting for Him. They assembled this coalition of political and spiritual authorities and they proceeded to try to make Jesus perform some kind of public gaffe to say something, to do something that would publicly embarrass Him, discredit His ministry, and undermine His influence among the crowds. The only problem, of course, was that they were incredibly overmatched. And so instead of embarrassing Jesus, Jesus embarrassed them. With each question that they asked Him and with each answer that He gave, He only revealed more and more how hard-hearted these men were, how slow they were to receive the truth. In fact, the whole display is so obvious that by the time it's all said and done, Jesus doesn't just win the argument, but He then proceeds to openly chastise these men, to publicly eviscerate them right there in the temple before the crowds for everyone to see as he catalogs what was wrong with their teaching, why it was wrong, and where it came from. This is where we've been during the last three months of this five-month endeavor covering the temple confrontation, Matthew 23, where Jesus announces his verdict and passes sentences on the religious leaders one last time. These are the final words that Jesus will ever say publicly as a free man before his resurrection. The next time the crowds are going to see Jesus, He's going to be on trial. That's the only course of action that the religious leaders will have after this whole exchange. They can't discredit Jesus. And so the only option they have left on the table, at least the only option that will allow them to save some measure of credibility once the whole thing is over, is to secretly seize Jesus under cover of darkness, quickly convict Him on a series of trumped-up charges, and then blackmail the local Roman prefect to put Him to death. The passage that we're about to study this morning are the very last words in this whole exchange. They are the very last words that Jesus utters to Israel 
in his public ministry before he's arrested, tried, and executed. And ironically enough, in these final words, it's Jesus who passes sentence. Jesus has already convicted the nation's religious leaders of spiritual homicide with malice of forethought. These are men who have knowingly suppressed the truth and have done so to the detriment of their disciples whose spiritual condition has actually been hardened as a result of their hypocritical teaching. Now Jesus declares the consequence of this crime. And this is what he says, Matthew 23, 29-39. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding, in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you, that you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not see your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Unfortunately, there have been a number of atrocities that have been committed over the years in the name of Christ. And of these atrocities, there have been perhaps none so great as that of Christian anti-Semitism. It's sad to say, but the belief that Jews are inferior, that they're worthy of persecution and even death, is an undeniable blemish, blemish on the church's history. And this isn't just true of Catholics. One thinks of Christian anti-Semitism, probably the first thought that comes to mind is things like the Spanish Inquisition. If you're not familiar with the Spanish Inquisition, that was a special tribunal established in Spain in the late 1400s specifically to discover secret Jews and Muslims through the use of torture if necessary so that they could be dealt with according to Spain's laws. Spain would eventually forbid Jews and Muslims from living in the country. The Spanish Inquisition was designed to help discover those who made a false conversion of faith in order to remain in the country. That's probably the first thing that one thinks of when one thinks of anti-Semitism in the name of Christ, the Spanish Inquisition, Catholic anti-Semitism. However, Catholics aren't the only guilty party. Protestants have been known for their anti-Semitism as well. In fact, Martin Luther himself the father of the Protestant Reformation, was very famously anti-Semitic later in his life. For instance, one of his later works is called On the Jews and Their Lies. And in it, Luther advocates that Jewish synagogues and schools be burned down, that Jews be prohibited from owning homes, that their religious writings be taken away and their rabbis prohibited from preaching, and that they be offered no safe passage when traveling. Now, to be sure, Luther didn't always hold these kinds of radical views. Earlier in his life, Luther was actually quite hopeful 
for the conversion of the Jews, and even criticized the Catholic Church for their anti-Semitism. However, when the Jews did not convert under the preaching of the gospel, Luther's views changed dramatically, and he became very embittered against them. In fact, his writing became so vitriolic that the Nazis themselves would eventually cite Luther to support their radical ideology. So no one can really escape this. This is part of the church's history. And because it's a part of our history, this is even how many unbelievers understand Christianity. They think that it's an inherently anti-Semitic religion. As a matter of fact, a number of years ago, I was listening to this conversation between a Messianic Jew. Uh, if you're not familiar, that's a Jew who believes in Jesus. And he was talking, about a, well, he was talking with a Jewish anti-missionary, this rabbi who was committed to stopping the spread of Christianity in the Jewish community. Uh, these two were having a, a conversation on this podcast that I was listening to, and the Jewish anti-missionary, uh, who was trying to make a case against Jesus, said... Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah. Because it says in Zechariah 8.23 that in the days of the Messiah, quote, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of Jews, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And this hasn't happened, he said. After all, just look at all the anti-Semitism that the church has practiced over the years. That was one of his arguments against Jesus, Christian anti-Semitism. He said, Jesus can't be the Messiah because the Bible says that the Messiah is going to lead the Gentiles to worship the God of Abraham and embrace Israel, and that's not what's happened under Jesus. Jesus' followers, he said, are renowned for their anti-Semitism. That's the story of their history. They have categorically persecuted Jews, not embraced them. But is this true? Is Christianity inherently anti-Semitic. I mean, we can't deny that the church at times has been anti-Semitic in practice over the years, but why is that? Is that because of anything inherent in our theology? Something that we simply cannot separate from the message of Jesus? Or is it because the church has misinterpreted and even misapplied the message? There are a number of different arguments that Christians have used to justify their anti-Semitism over the years. Uh, Martin Luther, for instance, was frustrated with Jewish resistance to the gospel. Again, he actually had a very positive outlook on the Jewish people very early on. He believed that the reason why the Jewish people had rejected Jesus was simply because they had been persecuted, or or they had been presented with, sorry, rather, with a a Catholic Jesus. He thought that once they heard the message of justification by grace through faith, that would change. There would be this mass conversion of Jews that would take place. That didn't happen, though. And so he became disillusioned, and he started to re-examine his interpretation of what the Bible said about Israel. Eventually, he came to the conclusion that the Bible said that the conversion of Jews was impossible, and so his attitude toward them hardened. And so, far from trying to convert them, he instead believed that he was justified in saying that they should be persecuted as enemies of God. Another commonly held belief was, has been this idea that the church replaces Israel in the New Testament. This is what some Christians have argued. They said that the Bible teaches that Israel's unbelief was so entrenched that God finally rejected Israel as a people after the death of Christ. They say that when Jesus was killed, that was essentially the final straw. God gave up on them, and He decided to fulfill His promises through the church instead. So there's no longer any future for Israel as a special people. There's no longer any reason to esteem them as somehow especially beloved of God. They're done. God's through with them. 
You can now disregard them entirely as a people no different than any other nation on earth since the focus is now entirely on the church. Perhaps the biggest and most renowned charge against the Jewish people is this idea that they're, quote, Christ killers. This is where perhaps the bulk of anti-Semitism has been rooted in this belief that the Jewish people are uniquely responsible for the death of Christ. The idea is that because they killed the Christ, they must be an especially wicked people who are especially deserving of our scorn and derision. So you have a number of different explanations that Christians have used to justify anti-Semitism over the years. And of course, you can see the overlap in each of these ideas. After all, one could argue that because the Jews were an especially hard-hearted people, that they killed the Christ, and so God has rejected them as a people. You could really combine all the different reasons for Jewish persecution into one cohesive thought. But the basic idea is that they're wicked, so God has rejected them. And now they're under divine judgment. A divine judgment that we as Christians should participate in in our persecution of the Jewish people. That's what some Christians have thought over the years. And when they've gone to specific passages to support these ideas, they've gone to passages like the one that's before us this morning. You look at this passage, you look at Matthew 23 as a whole, and it's obvious that Jesus is angry with the scribes and the Pharisees for their hard and stubborn hearts. I mean, you look at the tone of this passage, and and with the exception of the two temple cleansings, this is probably the angriest that we ever see Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees are, in Jesus' eyes, hypocrites in the highest order, and Jesus makes it very clear that they will pay the penalty for their sin. That's especially evident in today's passage, where Jesus says that all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, will come upon this generation of Israelites. That's just an incredibly strong Strong condemnation of Israel's religious leaders to say that they will be held accountable for all the righteous blood that's been shed on the earth. I mean, if that's the case, then you can almost see where people are getting this idea from that God has rejected the Jewish people in their murder of the Christ. But is that what this passage is saying? Is Jesus saying that with this supreme act of sin, God is turning His back on His people. Does this passage indicate that Israel has been rejected, that they are uniquely under the wrath of God? I don't think so. I don't think so. Actually, far from it. In fact, I think what this passage reveals is not merely wrath, but actually the unconditional grace that God can express, even in the midst of, and perhaps even to some degree through, Divine wrath. There's a very strange and significant kind of love that Jesus expresses here, even as he condemns this generation of Israelites for their sin. I think you you see this grace emerge in the very last words in this chapter, verses 37 to 39. If you look at this section of Matthew 23, it can be broken down into three parts. First, you have a verdict. 
a verdict. If you recall, you have these seven woe statements scattered throughout chapter 23, and they're grouped in three pairs plus one. Well, you know how uh, people can be put on trial for multiple crimes, and then at the end of the trial, they'll declare which crimes the defendant has been convicted of in the verdict. That's kind of what you have with each woe statement in Matthew 23. For example, on the charge of first-degree spiritual homicide, verses 13 to 15, the defendants have been found guilty. On the charge of religious fraud, verses 16 to 24, the defendants have been found guilty. And on the charge of impersonation of a spiritual leader, verses 25 to 28, the defendants have been found guilty. Each woe statement not only explains what was wrong with the Pharisees' teaching, why it was wrong, and what it produced, they're also all essentially verdicts. Well, here we have one final charge, one that serves really just as much a a prediction of what the Pharisees are about to do as it does a description of what they've already done, what they already are. On the charge of assassination of a religious leader in high treason against the king, guilty on all accounts. Of the murder of every prophet, wise man, and scribe, from Abel all the way to the very end of the age, the defendants have been found guilty. Jesus applies the evidence for this verdict in verses 29 to 31, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. The evidence comes in the form of a confession. Again, Jesus is supplying evidence for the verdict here. That evidence comes in the form of a confession. You know how sometimes, you know, as a suspect is under investigation and he's telling his story, he'll try to proclaim his innocence and then suddenly let slip some key fact that blows apart the whole story and places him at the scene of the crime when it occurred. That's what we have here in verses 29 to 31. The Pharisees unwittingly confess that they are accomplices in the death of the prophets. Every Israelite would have been intensely aware of the fact that they rejected the words of the prophets throughout their history. And much like the church's practice of anti-Semitism, it's a history that they would have been very uncomfortable with. One that they would have tried to distance themselves from because they knew it was wrong. And so apparently what they'd try to do is, is they'd, they'd try to honor the martyred prophets of the past by building these elaborate tombs for them. And they'd say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. They'd say, we're not like those men. We wouldn't have have complained against Moses. We would have entered the promised land when he told us. We would have repented at the preaching of Elijah. We would have heeded Isaiah's warnings. We wouldn't have done anything that our fathers had done. We're much better than that. Now, it may be hard for us to understand today because the way, we, the way we think about a relationship between a father and his son is very different from the type of thing that we see in Scripture. But it's this last statement. Yeah, we, would have, we wouldn't have done anything that our fathers have done. It's this last statement that would have placed the scribes and the Pharisees at the scene of the crime. Effectively as accomplices to the crime. See, we're a very individualistic culture, and so we tend to see each generation as entirely distinct from the one that came before. Every person, we think, is free to form their own identity, unique from the identity forged by their parents. 
But that's not exactly how it works, does it? Not only in Scripture, but in life. It doesn't work that way, right? After all, you don't only share your parents' DNA, but generally speaking, you share their ideas too, don't you? After all, you come into the world as little more than an intellectual blank slate with a heart that's inclined towards sin. Your parents then inform and shape your thoughts through their training. Sure, you may eventually rebel, because our society will tolerate a level of rebellion that was never permitted in the Scripture. But you stop to think about it very often, you can see that even your rebellion is rooted in the ideas that were first planted by your parents. You are the product of their instruction, whether it be intentional or unintentional, taught or caught, for good or for worse. I think we all see that, don't we? And it only becomes more and more evident as you get older and you begin to approach the age at which you knew your parents when you were growing up. You find yourself almost instinctively saying things and doing things that you heard your parents say and and, and saw them do when you were growing up. And very often you even repeat their sins, don't you? Now you may not do all the exact same things that they do. You probably even go out of your way to avoid the, the most onerous ones. But on the whole, you still find yourself repeating many of the thought patterns, many of the same habits, both good and bad, that they performed. Don't you? I know I do. You know, Emily sees it in me, and I see it in her. We've talked about this. this is we, we repeat the lives of our parents in many ways. Well, this is how it works in Scripture, too. In Scripture, children are little more than a reprint of the image of their parents. They're made in the image of their fathers. And this means that apart from divine grace, they're essentially destined to repeat the sins of their fathers. This was even one of the hopes of the New Covenant. Referring to the New Covenant age, it says in Jeremiah 31, 29-30, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. That, that refers to this idea that the fathers would sin, and then the children would share in the punishment for their sin. Jeremiah says, that's going away. Sin isn't going to span across generations in this way anymore. Each man is going to die for his own iniquity. This is part of the good news of the gospel. You are no longer, Christian, destined to repeat the sins of your parents. Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus can open your eyes to the truth and free you from the power of sin. Apart from that grace, you don't have that guarantee. And the ancient Israelite understood this. They understood that the Son is a product of the Father, that as the Father does, so does the Son. Well, the religious leaders look at what their fathers did, and they say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. You know what Jesus says? He seizes on that thought. And He says, so you're saying that they are your fathers. You're saying that you know these murderers. Even more, you're saying that you're their children. The implication is that they would have killed the prophets because they are the children of those who killed the prophets. The sin that resided in those men still resides in them. It was passed down, not just in their nature, but even in their teaching. So by their own confession, these men admit that they are of the same kind as those who murdered the prophets. 
That's the evidence for the verdict. In verses 32 to 36, Jesus then passes sentence. He says this, Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. It's an interesting sentence. These men, by their own confession, are sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, the propensity for that kind of evil resides in them. And yet they haven't fully acted on it yet. Again, they're not just spiritual murderers, they're spiritual assassins. The problem is that up to this point, they haven't acted on that crime. Those desires reside within them. They just haven't had the opportunity to see it all fulfilled just yet. And so what Jesus says He's going to do as a consequence of their sin, He's going to give them the opportunity to act on that desire so that the judgment they deserve can come down on them. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers. Literally, He says, you sons of serpents. How are you going to escape the sentence of hell? Jesus says, you are wicked men who deserve the full punishment of under the law. And then he says, so what I'm going to do is send you prophets and wise men and scribes. The present tense of that verb send indicates that this isn't something that Jesus has already done. It's something he's presently doing. It's something he's in the process of doing. And it would appear that he's talking about the church, particularly the early church. In Matthew 28, Jesus is going to commission his disciples to go out into the world preaching the gospel. Some of these disciples, particularly early on, will be prophets Some will be wise men, that's to say they're going to be clever, intelligent men. And some of them will be scribes, that's to say they're going to be legal scholars. These would be men like Agabus, who is described in Acts 11 and Acts 20 as a prophet. And Apollos, who is described in Acts 18 as an incredibly eloquent preacher. There's your wise man, your clever man. Men like Nicodemus, who is described in John 3 as a Pharisee, a man who would have been very well studied in the law. These would be men like the apostles. Men like Paul, who would have fit the description of prophet and wise man and scribe. Point being, Jesus is in the process of sending these men who will not only perform signs testifying to the truth of their message, but they will also proclaim the gospel from Scripture and with eloquence so that there is no excuse The truth is going to be clearly understood and evidenced by the ministry of these men that Jesus is sending. But, Jesus says, these men aren't going to be received. Instead, some of them, the religious leaders, will kill and crucify. Some of them they will flog in their synagogues and persecute from town to town. You see all of this take place in the book of Acts. Why? Why does Jesus say He's going to do this? He says, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Abel, of course, was killed by his brother Cain. Well, before there was even a people called Israel, he suffered death. He is, in a sense, the first martyr that we see in Scripture. He was slain for his righteousness. 
Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, probably refers to the Zechariah of the Minor Prophets, who's identified as Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, in Zechariah 1.1. And I say probably because we don't have any record of the, in Scripture of Zechariah's death. And, and while 2 Chronicles 24.20-21 records that a Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple, it says that that Zechariah is named Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, who lived some 300 years before the prophet Zechariah of the Minor Prophets. This has led some to speculate that Jesus is referring to this first Zechariah who, according to the order of the Hebrew canon, would have been the last prophet killed in the Old Testament. Personally, I think the evidence points to the other Zechariah, the one who wrote the book of Zechariah. But in the end, it doesn't matter. Uh, You don't have to know which Zechariah Jesus is referring here to understand the point. Regardless, the idea is that all the blood from the first martyr in the Old Testament to the last one, It's all going to come on this generation by virtue of their participation in the death of these New Testament martyrs. These men are going to prove the verdict true. They're going to prove the judgment just. That they are co-conspirators with their fathers. Accomplices. In in all the deaths of all the former martyrs by virtue of their willingness to participate in the deaths of these latter ones. So they're going to be judged for the death of all. And Jesus is going to provide them with the opportunity. That's the sentence. They've already confessed to the fact that they're sons of those who murdered the prophets. They are guilty. And so as a sentence, Jesus is going to provide them with the means to prove their guilt. To commit a crime that's in their hearts. So that all the blood of all the martyrs and all the judgment that that incurs will fall on them. So once again, you have these... There's three parts in this final woe section in Matthew 23. First, you have the verdict. The religious leaders are guilty of assassination of a religious leader and high treason against the king. By their own confession, they are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Second, you have the sentence. While these men haven't personally committed the crime just yet, they've already confessed to the crime. They have that desire. So Jesus is going to present them with the opportunity to act on that desire so that all the blood of the martyrs may fall on them. And then third, you have a lament. A lament. And this is where things, I think, really start to get interesting. Jesus Jesus is on this tear. I mean, he's just ripping into the religious leaders, going, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Again, this is perhaps the angriest we ever see Jesus. And then if that's not enough, he pronounces this absolutely devastating sentence where he tells the religious leaders... I'm going to hold you accountable for all the blood of all the martyrs who've ever lived because that's what's in your hearts, you wicked men. And he's absolutely right, by the way. In fact, it won't take them more than three days to prove it because it's Tuesday and by Friday they'll have killed Jesus. They'll have not only killed the most righteous man who's ever lived, but they'll have killed the man that all the prophets of the Old Testament pointed to. Really, you don't even need Israel's persecution of the early church. Just look at what happens by the end of the week. Look at what's already happening in the temple on Tuesday. The religious leaders have rejected the greatest revelation of God who's ever lived. They're guilty. And again, in one breath, Jesus is condemning them for that guilt. But then then in the next, he's lamenting the fact that they must be condemned. He cries out, verses 37 to 39, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is an absolutely fascinating verse because it it echoes a passage from the Song of Moses. If you're not familiar with the Song of Moses, it's a song that Moses taught the people of Israel just before his death, essentially as a witness against them as he predicted their future apostasy and the judgment that God would bring against them as a result of that apostasy. It occurs in Deuteronomy 32. And after lamenting the rebellion of Israel, Moses describes God's original deliverance of Israel like this. This is Deuteronomy 32, 7-12. He says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people Jacob, his allotted heritage. And listen to this. He says, He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. And it you know, refers to God's deliverance of, of his people, and it depicts it like this eagle kind of hovering over its young with its wings outstretched. Well, here Jesus uses this same terminology. Only this time he is the bird hovering over Israel, protecting her. This is incredibly significant, not just in terms of what it tells us about Jesus, but also in terms of what it tells us about the nature of the ensuing judgment that's about to happen. In this passage, Jesus is depicting himself as Israel's deliverer. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that he's pointing back to his pre-incarnate relations with Israel. In other words, when Jesus is saying, how often I would have gathered you, that's not just a reference to the calls of repentance that started after the baptism of John. No, that's stretching all the way back through Israel's history. Keep in mind, Jesus has just pointed out, perhaps not more than a few minutes before this whole diatribe against the religious leaders, He pointed out that the Messiah had to be God. That the Psalms predicted that He would be God. And in just one day earlier, Jesus stood in the temple healing the blind and the lame with this authority. And now He speaks of how often He wanted to gather Israel together under His wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks. I don't think there's any question. He's putting Himself in the position of God here. And He's lamenting Israel's rejection of Him, not just here in the temple on Tuesday, but throughout the Old Testament. It's like when the angel of the Lord assembles the people of Israel at Bochim in Judges 2 after they refuse to utterly expel the Canaanites from the land. And He cries out to the people, You have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Don't you see? Now I will not drive out the Canaanites before you. In fact, this passage is like that one in more ways than just one. You see, look here in verse 38. As Jesus longs to protect Israel, he declares, See, your house is left you desolate. Your house is left you desolate. 
The word there is eremos. And it means literally abandoned or empty. The word house here, that's a reference to the temple. You see what's going on here? In Matthew 21, God comes back into the temple. You see, the original temple, it was, it was possessed by the presence of God. God, in some special way, dwelt there among the people of Israel. And so long as God dwelt there, Israel was secure. God's glory departed, though, in the book of Ezekiel. And shortly after that, the Babylonians not only captured Jerusalem, but they destroyed that temple as well. The second temple was nothing but an empty husk. The Israelites rebuilt it. But God's glory didn't come upon that temple like it did the former one. It was an empty house. In Matthew 21, God comes back. He stands there in the temple as the son of David, testifying to his identity with the miracles that he performed in his midst. But what happens the very next day? He comes back into the temple, and the religious leaders chase him out. By the end of the week, they'll kill him. So can you see what Jesus is saying? Their house is being left empty, abandoned. Jesus came to rescue them, but they rejected that offer. And so what will happen next? It's obvious to anyone. It's obvious to anyone. This temple is going to meet the exact same fate as the first one. With no one to protect Israel, the nations are going to come and devour them. Again, just a little little bit of Old Testament theology here. In the Old Testament, it was understood that the foreign nations are ruled by foreign gods. Demons, actually, all of whom are are opposed to the God of Israel. Moses actually briefly alludes to this concept in the passage we just read from the Song of Moses. He says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And he goes on to recall how the Lord alone guided Israel and how, quote, no foreign God was with him. This phrase, sons of God, is used in Job 1.8 with reference to the angelic host. You combine this with passages that say that the idols worshipped by other nations are in fact demons. That Satan is the ruler of this present world. You combine it with passages like Daniel 10 which speak of the angel Michael contending with the rulers of Persia and Greece. And however the specifics of the concept are worked out, I think you still get the idea. Israel is presented in the scripture as this outpost in a sea of foreign nations, all of whom are ultimately under the power of Satan. And the only reason why they aren't immediately devoured by these people is because God dwells among them and protects them. He hovers over them like an eagle spreading out her wings over her young. When God is removed, when His people reject Him, and evict him from his house, then there can only be one result. And Jesus is going to explain that result in the very next chapter of this gospel as he sits with his disciples in the Mount of Olives. The nations are going to sweep in and they're going to devour them. The temple, it's going to be destroyed again. And the Antichrist, the one who has been especially empowered by Satan to rule this planet, He's eventually going to set up his throne on the very spot where God is supposed to reign over his people. This is important. The judgment that's about to come upon Israel, it's a passive kind of judgment. God is not destroying his people. Rather, he's staying his hand. 
It's the nations that are going to attack Israel. And the Messiah is simply going to sit enthroned in the heavens at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, until God gives him the word and sends him to smash those nations with a rod of iron. Israel's judgment, it's a judgment that they've brought upon themselves. And Jesus laments here. He laments, he mourns, because he wishes that things could have been different. See, he understands. He knows what their rejection of him means. The coming Roman-Jewish war, which would result in the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., according to Josephus, it claimed the lives of more than 1.1 million people in Jerusalem. That's coming. And Jesus knows it's coming. He predicts the destruction of the temple. According to Luke, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Sunday, he even wept over the thought of it, saying, again, this is in Luke, Jesus entering into Jerusalem on on Palm Sunday. Jesus says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps over that. And that's a reference to the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Roman army dug a deep trench around Jerusalem and then literally built walls as high as Jerusalem's own city walls around the city so that they could capture and slay anyone who tried to escape. Again, 1.1 million people died in that siege, according to Josephus. And note here that Jesus speaks of the day of Israel's visitation. The idea, once again, is that God has come with blessing in His hand and they could not see it or understand it. And so now all these troubles are going to come upon them. Jesus understood that his rejection meant at least this. At least this. What some have called the greatest tragedy committed upon a people until the time of the Holocaust. The destruction of the Jerusalem, the Roman and Jewish war. Now whether Jesus understood in his humanity that it would also result in things like the Spanish Inquisition or the Nazi Holocaust, at the very least, he expected that it would result in precisely the kind of anti-Semitism that would produce these atrocities. Once again, he's lamenting the fact that Israel is being left unprotected. He understands that the nations are coming. And that Vespasian and Titus, the Roman generals that would tear down Jerusalem, they're just the beginning. Do you understand? Anti-Semitism, so far from being something that Jesus advocates for in this passage is instead something that he's actually lamenting as he sees Jerusalem laying there unprotected and ripe for destruction. Now that being said, I want to be clear here. Don't misunderstand me. The judgment that's about to happen is just. Jesus isn't mourning the mere fact that Israel is about to suffer. He's mourning that it didn't happen differently. The judgment is just. But there's a sense in which Jesus wishes that it could have happened differently. So why didn't it? You ask that question? I ask that question. I don't know about you, but I find Jesus' reaction here very curious. It puzzles me. After all, God is sovereign, right? Meaning that God is able to change Israel's heart to produce a different reaction, can't He? It it seems He can. 
After all, that was the whole promise of the new covenant. God told Israel that He would give them new hearts and cause them to walk in His statutes. He said that they would no longer need a teacher because He would write the law on their hearts and they would all know Him from the least of them to the greatest. Clearly, it seems that God is capable of changing Israel's hearts so that they don't reject Him. And by that, I don't mean that He would force them to do something against their will. I mean He's able to change their will so that instead of rejecting Him, they embrace Him, they long for Him. So why doesn't God do that yet? If God loves His people so much, then why does He let them go through with this? Why does He allow them to reject Him like this? He knows it's going to produce the judgment that Jesus is predicting. If He can stop it, why doesn't He? In short, how is it possible for Jesus to stand here lamenting the fact that things didn't turn out differently when God was fully capable of having things turn out differently? How can God lament something He could have prevented? Isn't that a a bit disingenuous? Don't we really have to say that God wanted Israel to reject Him? We do have to say that, actually. In fact, we don't even have to speculate. Because in Acts 2, Peter tells us, during his speech to Israel at Pentecost, Peter says, Acts 2.23, he says to the, the people of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter tells Israel, you killed the Christ, you're responsible for this sin, but he also says God planned it. Do you understand, according to Peter, lawless men killed Jesus, they killed him as an expression of their sin, and they'll be judged for it, as Jesus says here in Matthew 23. However, they did this, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God meant for them to do it. Perhaps it goes too far to say that he wanted them to do it, but he most definitely intended them to do it. Doesn't that raise a question about how he can be sad here? How can he be sad if essentially he wants this to happen? As I've wrestled with the answer to that question, I've seen uh, that there's a lot to say here that I think really magnifies the grace of God. In fact, it's far, far more than I'm going to be able to cover in the time we have left today. So rather than try to cover that now, I want to come back and take a deeper look at the implications of Jesus' lament here next week. In the meantime, would you just note that God very clearly has not rejected Israel in this passage. Even in judgment, there's a love here that causes Jesus to lament the fact that Israel must go through it. In other words, the relationship isn't severed. Jesus isn't rejoicing in the suffering that Israel is about to experience. He's not delighting in their misery as as a just punishment for their sin. No, he's lamenting. He's mourning. He literally wept at the thought as he entered into Jerusalem. This means that the anti-Semitic statement by guys, again, you know, Martin Luther, he's someone that in a lot of ways, a hero of the faith in many ways, flawed individual, but a hero in many ways. But the, but the anti-Semitic statement by guys like him, they're very out of place in the church. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six that the Jews are enemies as it regards the gospel, meaning that in their rejection of Jesus, they are opposed to Christ and the church, but... He continues, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So yes, God is angry with Israel for its rejection of the gospel, but He still loves them. He's not turned His back on them. And this means that while, yes, He's going to allow the nations to come in and devour them, 
He's not pleased with the nations that are doing it. You understand, Jesus is is telling Israel that they're going to suffer this overwhelming wave of anti-Semitic sentiment after he's gone. The nations are going to persecute them, but he hates that. He doesn't delight in that. He rejects the idea. It's the unfortunate consequence of Israel's rebellion. He's not pleased with it. In fact, you go back to the Song of Moses, and, and, and do you know what it says? Moses predicts Israel's rejection of God. He, he predicts that God would judge Israel and scatter them among the nations. And keep this in mind, by the way, for next week, because this is going to play into our answer of the, to this very puzzling response from Jesus. Moses knew that Israel would reject God. How did he know that? That's going to help explain why Jesus reacts the way he does here. Anyways, Moses predicted Israel's rejection and their ensuing punishment. And then at the very end of that song, he wrote this. God is speaking, and he says this. He says, vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord, listen here, he says, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. God mocks Israel at this point for their rejection of him. This seems to explain, at least in part, why God allows them to go through this suffering. He wants them to see. He wants them to understand the foolishness of their unbelief. But now listen here to what God says next. He says, See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. In short, what this passage says is that while God allows the nations to swallow up Israel for a time, He also promises punishment to those nations for the persecution of His people in the end. Do you see, just as God intends for Israel to reject Him while at the same time lamenting their rejection, so also does He intend for the nations to persecute His people while at the same time hating that persecution. Just as Israel committed a great evil in rejecting the Messiah and his messengers, an evil that Jesus holds them accountable for, so also the nations commit a great evil when they persecute God's chosen nation, and he will hold them accountable for that evil. So anti-Semitism has no place in the church. There's no biblical justification for it at all. It is rightly considered a blemish in our history, and it should be thoroughly rejected by each and every Christian today. So that's part one of our look at the grace of God in judgment. We can see that God's grace is evident in the fact that He has not rejected His people Israel, even as Jesus announces this blistering judgment against them. But how does this all work? How is it possible for Jesus to lament a judgment that God clearly intends to happen? I think as we explore the answer to this question, it's going to take this concept to a whole other level. God's grace is going to be magnified. His grace in judgment is going to be magnified all the more once we understand why he allows Israel to go through with this. And we'll take a look at that 
next week. In the meantime, let's close in prayer.